queer. I, you know, I've read a lot, and I've, in fact, I've seen in Baker Street this the apple yeah. sign up there. What actually does this consist of? Because you know, you see apple. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know we, you eat it, but I mean, what in connection with you is it exactly? It's just a business thing, you know. But it's like if we if we ever find any people who are good singers uh, and who want to get on record, then they get on apple. <laughs> Now, you realise it's a very difficult thing to say because you'll be swamped with letters saying, now, I'm a marvellous singer, now, will you give us a break? From uh, you? Not <laughs> from me, yes. <laughs> well, certainly. <laughs> yes, if I thought you'd be stupid enough, I certainly would. <laughs> As a matter of fact, well, actually, I used to be a singist. I was a wonderful singist at one time. And um, people said that I was unbelievable. <laughs> but, uh, d tell me, this, apart from being a kind of empresario, do you do, yeah. do you have, do you, do you have, um, do you organise um, a song pub publishing or? Yeah, there's lots of bits of it, you know, there's a, there's a company that can do films, company that can do records and that. It's not, it's not as big as it sounds, but uh, it can, it should be able to do a lot of things, you know. So if somebody comes out of the audience tonight and says, well, I can uh, make a great film for you, then instead of him getting passed by, yeah. do you want to make a film? <laughs> <laughs> I have to have a contract here, as it so happens. Welcome to this week's When They Was Fab. I'm Ed Chen. And I'm John Stone. So, uh, what we just found out recently, and uh, you may have heard if you listened to the end of last week's show, Georgia's estate has announced that they are coming out with an ultra-deluxe edition of All Things Must Pass, which we really kind of knew. We had great expectations, and they have delivered. Now in 2021, a proper 50th anniversary release of the entire album has finally been announced. In fact, there's no less than eight options to choose from, running from a mere two discs to a whopping 14 discs, with various selections of bonus tracks and swag. Yep, Danny said, really he said this two years ago, that there would be a 50th and, well, 50th, 51st, you know, again. Right. Like we said with Plastic Ono, does it matter that much? Yeah, <laughs> right. You know, you see... Uh the dates come up in your newsfeed and I don't automatically go, but where's the album? The nice round number looks better on the box. Though. <laughs> yes. Yes. Why we release this. It's 50. <laughs> One thing that they are doing is they are putting all of the outtakes and 
miscellaneous tracks on the vinyl. So whether you buy the five CD plus Blu-ray or you buy the eight LP version, you're going to get everything audio wise. And that's good. That's probably what the majority of people want is that, but that traditionally hasn't been the way they've handled these, you know, super deluxe editions of the, of these new releases. Well, I'm not real sure what the structure is within Apple, but you know, you kind of assume that Sean is ramrodding Lennon's estate and Danny is doing the same for Harrison's. So I think the main thing is they're just kind of going to Paul Hicks and, you know, some of the behind the scenes folks and saying, work on this until this is done. And so they're getting, they're getting remixes out that way. Makes you wonder what's still there. They put this out, and then they have living in the material world. Well, I mean, you know, it's like we were saying last week. What can sell ten thousand copies of a super deluxe edition from George? I think there probably will be a redo of the concert for Bangladesh. That that's probably next if they can get all the legal stuff worked. That's out. what I've heard is that the, the issue really is all the different acts now their estates that sort of thing, whether or not they can actually use those performances. Well, especially if they are going to do what I really want, which is to provide the tapes of both shows rather than just the mostly one show with a little bit mixed in from the other that we've had up till this time. Well, that's probably a good idea. So, oh, anyway, that's what's going on now. People who want context as to where we're sitting in 2021. But that got us thinking about the entity of Apple. It's real interesting company apple core limited oh i'm sorry but it's time to move away
Yes. Which kind of emerged from the time when late 66, early 67, Brian's contract was up with the group and there had been no renegotiations really yet. He had them sign certain legal papers with the record company, but their relationship was still kind of up in the air. So it seemed to me the company starting out was just a business exercise, a tax exercise, and they didn't really know what they were going to do with it yet. I think actually the idea for Apple was the accountant's idea. You must diversify. Brian and the Beatles were approached by uh, Walter Stratch, who was one of their accountants, who basically told them, you know, you've got X million pounds. One of two things is going to happen. It's either going to go to the government or you will put it into a business of some sort. I mean, it was a, a great idea. It's just with the madness, the vortex that was the Beatles, you know, I question what kind of business advice they were getting uh, as they went along, because I don't think even the four of them had made a real agreement as to what it would be. The big theory was that we'd put all our affairs into sort of one bundle. We'd have it as our own company, Apple, would be a record label, all the things we'd ever wanted to do. I think they'd, they'd figured out how they were going to divide it up, but that's about the extent of it. Right. Well, I think they came up, you know, well, we're going to have an electronics department because, you know, we have Magic Alex. And... Hello, I'm Alexis uh, from Apple Electronics. Uh, I would like to say hello to all my brothers around the world and uh, to all the girls around the world and to all the electronic people around the world. Uh, and uh, that is Apple Electronics. Criddle was a, a fashion designer who was going to take over Apple tailoring. So they kind of divided up on a big clock. <laughs> That's what McCartney always does. I put it on a clock. Much like Magical Mystery yeah, Tour. Right. But I don't think they really agreed as to how it would work. Because, you know, when George stayed longer in India, he came back, and, or he was there, and John and Paul came back to put Apple to work. And when he came back, he was quite shocked at what was going on. So he clearly was not in the loop. They all rang from England when, one morning, morning my time, and said, we're starting this company, Apple, and uh, we want you to run it. And then, uh, well, George wants you to run it, really. Paul said, I've asked Peter Asher, and, and John said, I've asked Mal Evans, bollocks to you. And Ringo said, no one's asked me, but you can come anyway. Well, you know, even by the time they went and announced this thing in the States, you know, what did John say? John said it was going to be... It's a company we're setting up which involves records, films, electronics, which make records and films work, and uh, what's it called, manufacturing? And that was kind of all he said about it. Right. Western communism is what they were trying to, to sell to the world. We hope to make a thing that's free, where people can just come and do and record and not have to ask, could we have another microphone in the studio because we haven't had a hit yet. Well, you know, they had lots of money and they thought that they could just go out and easily find talent as if 
other record companies weren't trying to do that. I guess they thought because they were the Beatles, they would get the right people to apply and they were completely overwhelmed. And so most of the people who came to Apple were through people they knew or experiences. Well, I mean, you know, they, they made a big mistake by putting out that Derek Taylor, the, the this man has talent ad. <laughs> right. You know, it, it's just inviting people to send in whatever they were doing. Oh, yeah, and someone will listen to it. <laughs> right. Well, they had the Apple scruffs. They could have brought them in and said, you start listening to this stuff. <laughs> and if you like anything, let us know. <laughs> They did run the one ad with the picture of the one-man band saying, send us your tapes and things, and we got billions of them. The tragic thing is, of course, we never found anything through that route that was any good. Because, of course, that, that fell to my world as head of a and I don't know. The whole thing just is a big swirl. Everything I've ever read about it was like, there is no plant here. But one of the major things of Apple for me is, you know, they were all sharing they all took a part of Apple. And so whatever anybody else did was going to affect them. Well, McCartney went out and did Come and Get It and Mary Hopkins, two hits, you know, early hits. And, you know, George went out and found somebody. But John, did he ever really produce something that you could say, yeah, that's gonna, That's a hit. That's going to make a lot of money. Well, he, he did. He was responsible, at least in part, for bringing in grapefruit, uh, which never actually released anything on Apple. Uh, and then, of course, the, the, I think John was more interested in the experimental side of things. Yes, I think you're right. That brings us to the records, the business of finding talent and releasing talent. That's one of the places where they actually made a right move. Peter Asher was perfect in that role. He did well. Now, again, it's, it's kind of like what you were saying. The only reason he got James Taylor there was because uh, he knew uh, Danny Korchmar. Right. With the exception of James Taylor, uh, who does Peter Asher take credit for? The Ivies, which became Badfinger, went through Mal through Peter Asher. Mal Evans, who was the Beatles' road manager, uh, brought in the Ivies on tape to an A&R meeting. He played a couple of songs. He was very keen on it, and the general feeling was absolutely, you know, Mal feels strongly about it. He's probably right. So we signed them. Well, I, I think Mal pretty much held on to them. Mal would be the A&R guy who actually did the discovery of the Ivies, I think. Right. I mean, he, he produced no matter what. He gets kudos just for that. Badfinger is an interesting thing. There's the tragic ending of Badfinger, but all the way through what they did on Apple. I think they resented Paul a little bit, even though he was responsible for their hit-making potential in the beginning. Right. He gave them that song, which do had commercial potential and was going to be part of a soundtrack of a movie that Ringo was in. So they had a pretty good shot, and he gave it to them and, and didn't really do much more than that. I think he produced Rock of Ages and Carry On. Straight up. Ass and No Dice were the other Badfinger albums. No Dice was primarily Mal Evans. And then Straight Up was Jeff Emmerich for a good part of it. And then George 
apparently Jeff Hammer produced an album which that just got kind of rejected. And then Todd Rundgren and George Harrison took over for some of the songs. And Ass would kind of signal the end of their dalliance with Apple. Right. Isn't that Chris Thomas? Yes. We wanted to stay with Apple. It was Pete wrote the song Apple of My Eye. He was so, you know, we were all kind of brought down about it. It was a bit of a drag, a bit of a bummer. I mean, don't forget, they, they took us from nowhere and put us somewhere. Despite their misgivings, Badfinger left Apple in September of 72. After four years in the Beatles' royal court, Pete Ham, Tom Evans, Joey Molland, and Mike Gibbons found favor at Warner Brothers. They had a different producer ever now. <laughs> the first uh, Magic Christian music had Tony Visconti. Who would then go on to produce the woman who would, be his, who would become his wife, Mary Hopkins. Right. And he did uh, Space Oddity by David Bowie. Well, and that brings us to a well-worn tale. We know that Bowie had approached Apple. Yes, the, uh, probably 90% of London. It got the people from out in the boondocks to send in their tapes, but all the people who are aspiring musicians also were looking to be part of it. Crosby, Stills, and Nash came to London with hopes of getting on Apple, and apparently George Harrison basically said, run. <laughs> that was with David Crosby being friends with all of them, even. Yes, but, you know, that was December of 68 when they were in England. And what did George call it? The winter of our discontent. I mean, he was fully aware of what was happening. And so I, I think he basically warned them off. Well, the winter of discontent was a little bit later. That That is how they referred to January of 69. Right. But that's, I mean, we're only talking a, but a it, couple it, of weeks. It, again, it extended into it. And John had already recorded the poem... Jacquinono. I mean, the the feeling was already there. Yeah, it got worse in the studio, but it was already messy. I saw Mark Lewison's presentation on what was going on in '68, and his big point about that is when the Beatles were recording the White Album, they would basically spend every morning dealing with Apple business. Then in the afternoon, when they came into the studio, they were all kind of pissed off and in a lousy mood already. <laughs> right. You go work on your thing, and I'm going to work on mine. Yeah, there was a lot of recording going on in different studios at the same time. George and John would be off working something, and Paul would be to himself. But it's interesting what you say about you know the Beatles not using Peter Asher's talents to their full extent. Apple really had a problem with publicity. I think that Derek Taylor was really focused on Britain because you know there's a story about the press office and McCartney approaching a PR firm to do commercials for the White Album. And it floated around, apparently, for several weeks until they decided, well, you know, it, that just doesn't look right with the Beatles for a TV commercial for the White Album. So they dropped it. But I think he was really kind of focused, thinking you know, he'd get something flying in Britain and it would fly in the United States. But it, it didn't really happen that way. And because Alan Klein came in, and really was only interested in the Beatles. I mean, he, he cut all sorts of things, and his entire focus was the Beatles. That's why he lost Peter Asher and James Taylor, and eventually Badfinger. And 
you know, with, with that happening, that would obviously be the end of the label. Although the studio and the publishing house actually kept going for a while. Right. Well, they had spent money after the get back sessions, as it were, to make the studio a real studio because Alex had not really done anything workable. And so to record what became Let It Be, they had moved equipment in from EMI. And yeah, that was all borrowed. Right. So they they then decided to make it a real studio. And so it actually functioned for a couple of years. Through the mid-70s. I'm not sure when the, the structure of Saddle Row started to be threatened. Apparently during the course of redesign, they knocked out a couple of load-bearing walls, which was not good. <laughs> Nowadays, it's a, what, an Abercrombie and Fitch? Well, I think the last thing I read is that it's empty. I don't know about the basement, but the building itself is an Abercrombie and Fitch now. Okay. Which is about as far as you can get from the idealism of Abercor. <laughs> get back. But apparently, if you ask nicely, uh, occasionally some, they will let people go up on the roof. <laughs> Richard DeLello, well, he was known kind of as the house hippie at Apple, kind of did all sorts of things. He tells a story about how the copper from the roof got stolen because people were just ripping things off. There was really nobody being in charge. And so people stole things and gold records, and you know, but they stole the copper from the roof. And I wondered, was that before or after the, the rooftop concert. That's a good question. It does remind one of the Ruttles, you know. Yeah, right. There have been continued allegations that Ruttle Corps is going bankrupt. Eric Manchester, the Ruttles press agent, are these allegations true? No, no. No, they're, uh, they're conjecture, you know. They're, they're sort of rumor. I think you find that where you get success, you'll always find this sort of rumor. No. So the stories of the theft... They're not true also? Uh, no, they're greatly exaggerated, greatly exaggerated. Uh, it's bad, you know, things are going. But uh, nothing like the rate that, that people indicate. The trouble is that people feel that because, because these boys are the Russians, people can come in and just help themselves to whatever they want, and this is just not on. And we're putting a stop to this, and we are doing, you know, it, it, it's almost dried up. Uh, things have gone. As they're being interviewed, it's walking out the door. That is George Harrison... Dressed as George Harrison, the reporter, <laughs> and his microphone is stolen. That's pretty funny. Yeah, my favorite thing about that scene is the is the guy who uh, is wheeling the bear out. <laughs> Ron Decline. Anyway, so, but of course by that time, the interest in the label, the person running it for the most part had been Paul. And when he decided that he had been basically kicked to the side by the other three in favor of Alan Klein. He really stopped being part of that at all. So that brings up the question, do you think it could have worked? Is there a way that Apple might've been a successful enterprise Apple course? Yeah, sure. It could have. Uh, and at the same time, you could say, there's no reason why the Beatles couldn't have gotten back together again occasionally to, to play. You know, they're putting out all four of their albums, and they could have been Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young and, and gone and done their solo projects and come back together if they could get along. 
you know, there was no reason why that couldn't happen. But you look at the successors of Apple, George really was the closest in terms of, you know, Dark Horse and then later on with Handmade Films. You know, maybe his reaction when he came back from India and saw that it was just a complete mess or, or at least an, not what he expected, he later got to see if he could do it. Well, I mean, in fact, as Apple was on the decline, uh, no pun intended again. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it, the story is that uh, George and Ringo actually approached Klein about buying Apple Records and, you know, running it themselves before Dark Horse. That's interesting. Um, as Newton said, all apples must fall. I mean, Apple was just going through such chaos from a business point of view anyway, and at that time, John and Paul didn't really want to know about it. You know, they were getting ready to sweep Apple Records underneath the mm. carpet, and Ringo and I were planning to try and keep it going, and there was so much problem, you know, just from um, old contracts that it seemed simpler just to start afresh. Mm. And in fact, Splinter was going to be on Apple. I've always liked Splinter's album and thought that uh, with the proper promotion, it should have been very successful. Their first album is the Lost George Harrison album. (laughs) That's why I bring up this question. Despite all of George's good intentions, Dark Horse as a record label really only lasted about two, two and a half years. Yeah. And, And they had a reasonably wide swath of artists in addition to splinter you had jiva the five stair steps we had ravi shankar of course well now that you say that yeah i think that's probably right gary wright wasn't part of that any of that was he gary wright had an album a henry mcculloch's solo album was on dark horse you know the point being that george had the artists but he just kind of grew tired of babysitting them as he says the artists came to view Dark Horse as more or less a bank. He could never do enough to keep the artists happy. Would the same thing have eventually happened? You know, we take Klein out of the equation. Would the same thing have eventually happened at Apple? Did the artists turn against it? Well, um, George just basically turned off the spigot at Dark Horse. Right. It got to be a point it's like, okay, Everybody's contract runs out. I'm not going to re-sign you, and Dark Horse will become a label exclusively for me. Although Danny has changed that again, and he's he is going to put out other people's records on the new Dark Horse. Well, you know the truth is 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 that when Klein came in for all the the damage that he did, he came in with an attitude of. This is the biggest band in the world, and you're going to pay them like it's the biggest band in the world. Because, you know, the contracts are done. I can take them anywhere I want. I'll get the price that I'm looking for. And so suddenly, you know, their record deal changed dramatically. Now, um, what he did was he took more of that than he should have, uh, according to the deal they had worked out. But it changed. So I don't know if they would have gotten that money going down the road without Klein. That's a good question. I mean, you know, what the Beatles could have done for their 
own interests in an apple without Klein. Right. Well, you could get really deep into it and go, what would Apple have been without Brian Epstein? Or with Brian Epstein. Or with. You know, I mean, it's, it's the relationship between the band and, and Brian had become more complicated. They weren't touring anymore. He had a five-year contract, which they signed in 1962, and it was up in 67. And so how they were going to go forward hadn't really been decided yet. Right in here is where he designed the contract with the record company to make it so that his company, NEMS, would take the royalties and then pay it to the Beatles. And the whole thing was getting very complicated. And I don't know, in a calmer situation, change the direction of what they thought Apple could be. Total speculation, you know, I don't know. Because by the time Apple really started to appear, you know, it it had showed up on the, the Pepper cover. But when... Brian died in August that threw everything into a completely different year. And the month before Brian died, they were in Greece. They weren't really cranking down on the, the business details. What are we going to do? And so when he died, they were still kind of like this, here's this thing we haven't really planned. We thought somebody had said you should invest some money. And we thought, well, let's buy an Island. We'll just go there and drop out. And it came to nothing. We didn't buy an island, uh, we came home. Well, and, and that brings us around to some of the wilder things that uh, were considered for Apple. I mean, Apple Electronics, <laughs> yeah, Magic Alex was, uh, uh, well, I think we all know what Magic Alex was. Uh, a government agent. <laughs> well, there was this guy called Alex, who wasn't magic, but John thought he had something. And he became friendly with us, right? And his dad was something to do with the coup that took place in Greece. So it was an easy place for us to go because he knew all the military. Later on, later years, uh, Alex ended up in the security business. There's a famous story about Magic Alex supposedly developing a uh, completely bulletproof limousine and he gave it to the president of some uh, country to be unnamed and he took it out and it's like it exploded <laughs> another fine product like- <laughs> exactly uh, although we, we we kind of have to be thankful that he is no longer with us uh, Alan Cozen wrote a long expose on the life and times of Alex Martis in the New York Times and Magic Alex came back and sued the paper, claiming libel. <laughs> well, the whole thing of giving away the entire stock of, uh, of the Apple boutique. I mean, we all know that you can reduce your prices and sell everything out. So we gave it all away. Yeah, we just gave it to the people who showed up on the day. And you could have one item each. And then you mustn't take two in the spirit of the thing. Well, they cleaned out the shop. 
And I didn't want them to close the shop, and I wrote an impassioned open letter, Dear boys, you know, if you do this, and a lot of other hoo-ha. Because I dreaded to see the thing falling apart. Well, and I believe they had all of the those clothes handmade. You know, it wasn't like they they went and sort of had any mass production on these outfits that they were selling in the store. That's right. I believe they were almost all hand-tailored items. I believe that's the, the truth. We started with, you know, Simone and Marike and all these colorful clothes and, you know, great 60s hippie gear. And then, you know, to make it pay, we ended up selling St. Michael underwear. And it wasn't the image we wanted. They had goofy knickknacks, you know, like blow-up chairs and things like that. The, you know, typical 60s stuff, beads. <laughs> but, um, yeah, just to give away all that. And then five months later, complain that you're going broke and you're down to your last 50,000 pounds. It's like, well, you know, you haven't figured this out yet. You know, you talk about that. Uh, Ringo was part of a furniture design business, uh, ROR, Ringo, Ringo or Robin. Rob, Robin Crookshank, I believe, is the fellow's name. Yes. And that company is still in business, believe it or not. Uh, it, Ringo is an owner, or did he sell it? Uh, Ringo sold to, to the partner, uh. but... But still, I mean, he, he, was, he was a part owner through the 70s. You'll see when people talk about the Apple Boutique, although it wasn't from the Apple Boutique, the, you'll see like glass tables and chairs, uh, you know, sort of late 60s, early 70s mod furnishings. Right. Uh, a la the, the, the big glass grapes that you would see everywhere. So Ringo actually financed, it was supposed to be within Apple originally, although it sort of spun off into its own company, again, within the madness. But the point being, th they actually made money off of this, uh, enough so that Ringo got back his original investment and uh, a reasonable profit when he sold off. You see all these little things, and it's like, well, if they had listened to the Eastmans, could they have brought the Beatles publishing into Apple Publishing? You know, if Klein weren't so, well, again, uh, if it weren't for Klein, could they have gone to Dick James and essentially make, made him an offer he couldn't refuse? One that's so large that it's like, even before he was thinking about selling out, he would have sold out. Yeah, but you know, one, one of the things that has always been part of their story, and it really came true in later years, is that you know, these were songs that, at least in the beginning, they didn't know about publishing. You, you just you made up your song, you sang it. You know, you didn't really understand about publishing. It took them a, a while to realize what it was. And as it went on, you know, and Dick James did things to make them happy. You know, took the the stock public and and uh, made them millionaires and. And that went on, but eventually they realized <laughs> there's somebody making a ton of money off of us. Well, and that's that's exactly the time we're talking about. You know, it would be later in '69 uh, into '70 when Dick James would become so fed up with quote the antics 
of the Beatles that that he was absolutely going to sell to somebody else. Have you seen the the uh, the promo film for Apple? John and Paul are in the office with Dick James, and the complete lack of respect for Dick James is palpable. So, Dick, that's it. You go away and you come back with something which you know won't start this argument again. You know, Paul is kind of playing it kind of cute, but he's trying to say, you need to do something, and John is just, you know, if looks can kill. The relationship between them was very fractured, so it would have taken somebody to come in to really do something. But Paul, particularly, never really grasped the worth of his songs, which is why he didn't put up the money to buy his catalog when he could have. He just couldn't see paying that kind of money for the songs that he wrote. Now, had he gotten them, he would have continued with his fortune. But he just didn't see it. Well, I mean, the existence of Apple Publishing shows that they were well aware of the value of publishing as an entity. By that time, absolutely. You know, and since we're what we're talking about is we're talking about when they were establishing Apple Publishing, you know, maybe what they should have done with all that money was go back to Dick James and throw it at him. We'll start the business with our own publishing. Hmm. And, you know, maybe Dick James wouldn't have sold, but maybe he would have. Suppose it's possible. Paul and Linda were just getting involved, so no one had Paul's ear who would say, you know, hey, publishing is a good thing. So even though he may have recognized it and realized it, it's, it's what you're saying, he didn't want to spend that much money on it. Right. It's hard to, to recognize the value of your own work. Even years down the line, when when he did have the chance, Paul again thought, well, they're asking us a little bit too much. We can, we can get this price down. And then there's some story about Yoko saying that she could get the price down. But Michael Jackson was cash heavy. The publishing thing ended up being pretty huge. And I understand the mess that was Apple publishing. I mean, that became an issue because uh, of those artists who were not collecting royalties because it was some question as to who controlled what. Well, I mean, to the point that Grapefruit, who was actually signed to Apple Publishing, years later, after John passed, Yoko would try and re-register some of those songs as lost John Lennon songs because they were Grapefruit demos that John was singing on that got played in the Lost Lennon tapes. That It's like, uh, no, this song's already registered and it belongs to Apple Publishing. Right. Some of the wilder things that, that the Beatles wanted to do with Apple... There's always the Apple school. It's like, oh, well, well, we all have kids of school age. So, you know, he actually went to their friend Ivan Vaughn and said, start up a school for us. Right. And and I don't know what time frame of exactly that was going on. But, you know, while the Apple idea was still in its formation, they were in Greece looking to buy an island. They all four would live and the kids would all go to school and they, you know, and so I've always thought that was when that idea was occurring because they were going to have a commune in Greece. And then, you know, that idea dropped 
and it moved on. And then again, the interesting thing about that is eventually what would Paul do? Paul would <laughs> go back and reopen the Liverpool Institute as LIPA, you know, the Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts. So he's running the Paul McCartney <laughs> School, basically. <laughs> well, everybody gets to try, I guess, what they, they were really interested in. George got to do films. But he was successful. I mean, you know, LIPA is a uh, is a money-making concern these days. I mean, well, it is not sucking money from McCartney. It is cash neutral for Paul these days. Well, that's a great thing. He does some good stuff. It's just kind of interesting to see how all of this falls back to things which have been floating around in their heads since the Apple days. And, you know... <laughs> They could be, okay, the second time around, I'll know what I'm doing. <laughs> so this time I can open up school and I know what I'm doing. I can. Handmade was actually successful and would have been successful had uh, George not trusted in uh, uh, yet another crook businessman. Yes, yes. <sighs> yeah. But I love Time Bandits. Unlike Apple Films, I think it's safe to say that there were both creative and financial successes that came out of Handmade. Yes. You know, of course, it helps that you have Monty Python there. That certainly helps. I think he really got sunk when he tried to do kind of a Hollywood-style thing with Sean Penn and Madonna. But the company still could have lasted through one big flop, I think. But George was going back to music, so... You know, he... Got to do what he wanted to do. But Handmade as a business was dealt with in a way that Apple Films never was. You, you had business people behind it, and you also had people dealing with editing and writing these scripts and honing them down so that you weren't just, let's just see what happens. <laughs> no, Paul, we're not doing Magical Mystery Tour again. Other than Yellow Submarine and Let It Be and uh, Raga, the Ravi Shankar film, what else came out of Apple Films? I think Perry Nielsen's uh, Son of Dracula. I think they called the company Rapple. Okay. Because it was kind of RCA and Apple. So I don't know if that counts. The point being that other than the Beatles stuff, which had to be right, we'll give them credit for Raga, even though that was never going to be a commercial success. Apple Films was just weird. <laughs> There wasn't a theme. You know, it was just 60s avant-garde <laughs> bullshit, basically. Right. There's the head of the studio. And I don't know if Apple Films actually ever had a, a head of the studio to know what they were headed for. You look at the people that were around. Heck, they could have had Monty Python in 1969 before the TV show. Right. You know, they were buddies. They, they could have signed them up to Apple Films. But they sort of came together organically from that television culture that they were all part of. So I don't know if they would have come together and come to Apple and said, hey, let's do this. Some of the guys were already together. Of course, some of the Pythons show up in uh, uh, Magic Christian. Cleese and Chapman do. Yeah, Cleese is in the... Uh, the art gallery. Nonetheless, those guys were known to the Beatles at that point in time. Yes. 
had there been a Peter Asher on the film side, you know, that's someone they might have been able to pick up. Right. With the right person at the head, you know, all sorts of things might have occurred. No matter what the Beatles would have done, had they broken up Klein or not, Apple would have ended. There, there, I think there's basically no ifs, ands, or buts about that. And maybe, the, you know, Apple was an entity that was not meant to live on into the 70s. Well, you know, it was in the 70s that all of Badfinger's major stuff was in 71 and 72, a couple of years after the Beatles broke up. And certainly that band could have gone further. Billy became a much bigger artist post-Apple. Right. He was on A&M and uh, his hits were all for the, you know, except for that's the way God. Nothing from nothing being the, the big hit. Right. Yeah. He had what? Three out of space. And then James Taylor in a world where Apple survives, even just a couple more years, Peter would have bought Linda Ronstadt into Apple. Yeah. That could have happened. You could go with Linda recording at Apple. She had a connection with the Eagles, who also had a connection with Glenn Johns. Maybe the Eagles would have ended up on Apple. Well, and, and then you also have Fleetwood Mac. I mean, we cannot forget that Mick Fleetwood was George's... Uh, brother-in-law. <laughs> brother-in-law-in-law. Yeah. Jenny Boyd's husband was Mick Fleetwood through the 70s, through the, the high point of Fleetwood Mac. It doesn't take much imagination to have Apple becoming a monster label in the 70s. Right. And somewhere in there is Kevin Bacon. Drive your number off my wall and maybe you will get a call from me if I needed someone. We brought up Robert Sigwood earlier. If they found a way to bring Robert Sigwood into being part of Apple Records, maybe not handling the Beatles side, but you know, let's put him on a level with Peter Asher. Then that brings in the Bee Gees. <laughs> well, you know, I suppose you know Klaus Forman did their first album. I just think that Robert Sigwood's commercial sense would have just rubbed them completely the wrong way. I mean, that this is the guy who made the movie Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. You know? Uh, I, I just think they would have been like, oh, you're not anywhere near us. Towards the beginnings of Apple, they told Brian that if you bring him in as part of NEMS, we're not re-signing. We're done if you bring Sigwood in as part of NEMS. There's an hour radio show right before Brian's death where he's talking with Scott Muni, I believe, and he's just effusive about Robert Stigwood. Clearly, his entry would have relieved Brian of a lot of what he considered the drudge work at this point. That brings us around to the rebirth of Apple. Now, that has to be considered, even though it is really just a company designed to put together the output of the Beatles, it has to be one of the more successful things of the 1990s to the present in the music industry. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the biggest selling album between the year 2000 and 2010 was one. 
And it stays on the charts. Yeah, that probably is album that's just going to be around forever because it's got a lot of great stuff on it. They've done a, a really good job of putting stuff out. The, the uh, anthology was great. and always tear some stuff apart like, ah, I wouldn't have done that or whatever. But I don't get to do that. So I appreciate what they've done. Well, I mean, again, because Apple nowadays, basically it's back to being Beatles Inc., they are very careful about everything they do. Right. In a way that the original Apple, they, they never really put the time or effort into every single project. Right. And the hits that Apple records would have were largely because of the artists, of course, but the input of one or more of the Beatles into the project. You know, Mary Hopkin or Badfinger or... James Taylor. Well, James Taylor, as he proved, he was successful on his own. But still, I mean, it didn't hurt that Paul McCartney's playing bass on the original version of Caroline in my mind. didn't hurt that it's a good song, too. There's one more thing I want to say about an an artist that should have made it that didn't. Jackie Lomax. You know, Sour Milk Sea is a great record. And it's a great record that features... Paul, George, Ringo, and Eric Clapton. And it was still never a hit. You're right about that. Although there is something, and it's all subjective, but there's something about the way his records were produced that sounds muddy to me. In virtually everything he does, New Day, Thumb and a Ride, Going Down to Liverpool, all that stuff, has a, a different tonal quality that just... Uh, doesn't quite fit in with the the sound that was coming out of Apple. But then I have to say, that's just me. Well, the, that's certainly worth considering. And, you know, again, maybe that goes back to what we were saying. The care was not given to every single thing which was being put down and released on vinyl from the company. You know, unless you had George or Paul behind the board. You know, that Radha Krishna Temple, that single... Sounds tremendous. Yeah, it's very simple. And so I think it was easy to get the clarity of tones. Because you do have to wonder, particularly with Sour Milk Sea, you know, you just listed off this roster of people, which should have produced a hit. But it's just the sound just is weird to me. That then brings us back to where we began. We we are getting a George version of Sour Milk Sea on the All Things Must Pass box. I'm looking forward to that. Yes. And I presume it's something he cut and not the Escher demos, right? The demo has already been released as part of the... Uh, the White Album. It should be interesting. You know, unless it's just a, a, a bit of a doodle, but I, I would think it's probably something he actually tried out during the sessions. Maybe he was thinking that they were going to have a real third record rather than just a jam. You know, I just had a, a thought. Have you ever heard the uh, the song uh, In the First Place? It's from The Wonder Wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's another one that sounds, it sounds like an amateur's producing it. And it was one of George's first records. And so it, it has a similar quality to me. You know, I can't back it up other than my own ear. But it's like those are his earliest records. Behind the board, you mean? Behind the board, yes. You know, he was in charge. He made the decisions. And so, you know, he got better fast. But, uh, because I think really 
what would be his first production would be um, after that would be Don't Come Easy. Yeah. George Martin did oversee the early versions of that. The backing in, I think the scratch vocal was recorded during uh, Ringo's sessions for uh, Sentimental Journey. I know Stills played on it. My thought on that is it's entirely possible that since the state of the Beatles were still up for grabs, that George and Ringo said, well, if John and Paul can do it, we can do it. <laughs> could, could be. That's why they went off and recorded this thing, and it's like, okay, no, that, that's not happening. We'll release it as a Ringo song. <laughs> that could be. But it always had the female backup singers, which would kind of make it a problem for a Beatle cut. Well, but they also could have been stripped off, because they were, they were on their own track. It's just true. All right, so that's uh, that's our look at Apple. Uh, we'll be back next week with a new show. It'll be fabulous. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we can be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Feaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. Apple Records was an adventure at the time, and it, it obviously continues to exist to this day. When the history of music of this of the last century is written, Apple will feature in there quite prominently. Free. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. 